grade, our Bible Explorers. Martha's in the back doing the uh, video for us. I do know whose wife is mine, Laura. She read Martha's Pat's wife. She's doing the video. Didn't say thanks to Martha referring to Laura. That would have been awkward. So you guys are processing with me. Yes, yeah, you heard that weird too, didn't you? All right, so children ages five years old through fifth grade are dismissed. Well, my name is Pastor Josh. Glad to be with you. Glad to open up God's word with you. We are in 1 Kings 19, which is page 301 in that pew Bible. 1 Kings chapter 19, page 301 in your pew Bible. Many of you would probably be able to tell that there has been a, a huge shift in the landscape of those that acknowledge to be Christians in America. The religious landscape in America seems to be changing right before our eyes. We're living in some pretty crazy times where you can feel the shifts. It's just all moving very quickly. Did you know that 20 years ago, half of Americans identified as Protestants? Half. Just a survey done in 2017 by ABC News and the Washington Post has found that that number has decreased to the point where only one out of every three people are Christians in 2017. Where's the answer? What are you to make of that? Where have they gone? Where are the Christians, the 50% that are now down to just one out of three? Well, the answer seems to lie in the rise of nuns. That's right, you heard me. Rising from 12% to 21% in 2017 are the religious unaffiliated, also known as nuns. N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Okay, so that's where they have gone. In other words, Americans and American Christianity that was in name only, now people are willing to drop the name. Where it used to benefit you to be a Christian, even if it was in name only, now it's no longer popular, and so people are willing to cast aside the name Christian. I love how Russell Moore put it. He said this, What this means is not that America has become post-Christian, but rather that we now live in a society that is post-pretend Christian. Post-pretend Christian. Isn't that good? No longer does it really worth pretending to be a Christian. So people are willing to cast it aside. So here's a question for us this morning. Are you pretending or are you really in? Are you pretending or are you really in? Have you ever actually asked yourself, am I really a Christian? Perhaps you should go home this afternoon and ask yourself that question. And maybe even at a dinner table, discuss, should we ask ourselves, am I really a Christian? Well, how would we know if we are a Christian in name only? It's a big question. Perhaps you consider this. People that are Christian in name only go to church. They love the church's values and stance on all kinds of social issues. People love the sense of community. It's a place where I belong, where this town feels a little smaller. People know me. But you're still basically pursuing your life. And things are going pretty well. And every so often... Maybe you turn to God in prayer for a little spiritual strength, or maybe for God to kind of just rubber stamp your agenda. Is that your life? If so, it is not the life that Jesus envisioned when he said, follow me. That's being a fan, not a follower of Jesus. And a fan is no more a follower of Jesus than a nominal Christian is a real Christian. Did you catch that? A fan is no more a real follower 
that a nominal Christian is actually a Christian. So what we're going to encourage you to do this morning is to kind of just throw away, crumple up, toss that old cultural script of what you might have been raised as calling yourself Christian or what Christianity is and going to church on Sunday. Let's crumple that up, throw it away, and let's go back to the Bible and actually see from God's word, what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? I didn't have all this cultural pressure and this legacy of my parents go here and so I go here and that's just what we do. You crumple all that up. What does God's word actually say? about being a follower of Jesus. And we see this illustrated in the life of Elisha. Look with me in verses 19 through 21 in a very basic text, only three verses, in a very basic sermon. If you're lucky, you also will be out of here faster than ever before. We ended the first service at 9 o'clock in one hour. You guys are like, wow, I wish I would have came then. All right. First Kings 9, 19, verses 19 through 21. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yokes of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yoke of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Here's a sermon in a nutshell. We're going to try to tackle the problem of name-only Christians. We're going to try to tackle the problem of what a nominal Christian is by learning three requirements to follow Jesus. Just three requirements to follow Jesus from the life of Elijah. First requirement to following Jesus is hearing the call, counting the costs, making the commitment. The three requirements of following Jesus. Let's take these each in turn. First, following Jesus requires that you hear the call, right? We have Elijah who passes by Elisha and he casts his cloak on him, kind of passing the mantle, kind of so to speak, right? He puts his cloak on him, a symbol of authority. That's what a, that's what a prophet had. And so we look at that and we realize that there was a call on his life, a call for him to follow in Elijah's footsteps to become the next prophet. But I think as we begin this sermon series, we have to deal with the big elephant in the room. I hope you've noticed it too. It is this question. Is the call of Elisha prescriptive or descriptive? What do I mean by that? Is how Elisha is called into ministry prescriptive, meaning that every single person has to have somebody walk by them and throw a jacket on them when they're not looking. And that's how you follow Jesus. Or, New Testament, every single person that becomes a Christian must be like Saul of Tarsus, on a horse, blinded by a great light, falls off, hears a voice, and has to go and find a guy named Ananias. That would be prescriptive. you got to do it just this way. Or is it kind of descriptive of how people are called? Here it is. Is this formal call to ministry of one descriptive of the universal call of all? I think that our context will help you understand the answer. If you look up at the page in verses 15 through 17 of 1 Kings 19, you'll notice that God doesn't just call preachers and prophets. Who does God call? He calls Haziel. He calls Jehu who are going to be kings. 
So what does that mean? Only one of the three who are called are actually called to what we would consider formal ministry, Christian service. And yet, did you notice that God anoints every single one of them for his purposes? Here's the point. God's call is universal. God's call goes out to all. And there's so many guests here. I don't recognize everybody here. And we're glad you're here. And we want to speak to you intelligently and, and just kind of honestly. If you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, I think hearing that God calls everybody, whether it's a prophet or a king, and he calls them, I think it deals with this question in your life. How is this relevant for you? You came here on a Sunday. We're reading about a guy who gets called to ministry. You are so far away from ever thinking that you want to be in ministry. Number one, we're glad you're here. You're our guest. But here's how it relates to you. What do you believe you are on earth for? Are you here on earth for a reason? If you're a non-Christian, are you here on earth for a reason? The Bible would argue that if you want purpose in your life, which I think our generation, our culture says, oh, we need to live for something. We can't let justice just kind of pass us by. We got to speak up. We got to do, we want purpose. We want to matter. We want to make a difference. Great. The Bible says if you want to have a purpose, you must have a creator. If there is no creator who didn't design you for something, then according to your own worldview, you would have to say you're an accident. If you're an accident, yes, you are free from God telling you what you have to do with your life. But you have no idea what you are free for. Is it really encouraging to be free from when you don't know what you are free for? My friends, if you're here as a non-Christian, let me talk with you more after the service on how you can go from a meaningless life to a life that can be meaningful as you hear the call that there is a maker over all of life who draws all to himself. What does this mean for Christians? Man, this is great. Right off the bat, we're kind of dealing with the big picture issues, but what this means for Christians is this. God calls every Christian into life and ministry. God calls every Christian, every, so just don't think about your neighbor, don't think about me, think about you. God calls every Christian into life in ministry. That's what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, these words. We, all of us that are saved by grace, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are good works that only you can do. God created you for him. And what this means is profound to our understanding of this word that we're going to use today, discipleship. We like to think that there are two categories of Christians. You know, the regular Christians and then those like super devoted type. You know, regular Christians believe, they just don't really get excited about it. They pray, but only when they're in trouble. And they go to church, you know, when they can and then there's like those devoted types that turn into be preachers and like preachers' kids. I have to sit in the front row. Sorry. It's those kind. <laughs> devoted. Just makes mom and dad pray a lot more. <laughs> but what does the Bible say about two kinds of Christianity? Right from this passage, we see that there are no two standards. There's only one. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. Right? To say that you believe in Jesus, but that you are not a disciple of Jesus is an oxymoron. People who know Jesus really follow Jesus. And so the call for discipleship 
is not optional. God calls every Christian into life and ministry. So it's not optional. Say, oh, I don't want to be a disciple. Well, my friends, we're trying to clarify what is nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only says, I want to believe in Jesus, but I don't want to be a disciple. That's name only. There's no other option. Which necessitates our second requirement this morning. Moving right along, following Jesus requires counting the costs. Following Jesus, number two, requires counting the cost. Did you notice how much it cost Elisha to follow Elijah? We see, first of all, he had an economic cost. He had 12 yoke of oxen. Now, I am not a math major nor a farmer, so Dana, correct me if I'm wrong, but a yoke of oxen, 12 yoke of oxen, would mean that he would have 24 oxen. Brandon, thanks. Dana, appreciate that. Good job. All right. Now, notice in the Bible here, in verse 19, it says that they were all in front of him. That's a good place for oxen to be, not behind you. You don't pull them. You know, they kind of pull you. Learn that, okay, in my time from the city. But here's what's even more important. All 12 yoke are in front of him, which means that he's the last one plowing the field, which kind of implies that he's the owner or the supervisor, okay? It just might so happen that what we have here is in contrast to what Laura read. Laura read about the rich young ruler who wasn't willing to give it all up to follow Jesus. But here we might just have a rich young person who has 12 yoke of oxen, 24 oxen, and he's the one that's in the very back. I also think that these are his oxen personally because he actually slaughters them, chops them up, boils them, and serves them on his own farming equipment at the end. Now, if they were his dad's, he would have to just say, hey, dad, you know, I'm leaving. I'm not working for you any longer. But the fact that he kills them and that he destroys his own plow and his own farming equipment, not only does it mean that he's not turning back, but it means that he's all in and that, that he counted the cost of his wealth. He also had to count the cost relationally. We see that Elisha had a family. He asks in verse 20, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. Okay. But then we get this troubling and confusing response from the prophet Elijah. Elijah says to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? What does that mean? Have you looked at that all week long, just kind of wondering about his response? Well, the good news is there's not a single commentator that really wants to comment on it. Here's what I think it means. Go ahead. I have not done anything to stop you from turning back. Go ahead. If you want to turn back, that's on you. I haven't done anything to stop you. What we clearly see here, whatever this means, is that God's call for us to follow him, to be a disciple, requires sacrifice. And this kind of sacrifice is jolting. Jesus Christ says the same thing to us in the New Testament. Turn over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through 62. If you're new to our faith family, the large numbers are the chapters, small numbers are the verses, and we will give you time to get there. But use that Red Pew Bible and turn to page 868, and you'll find Luke 9, 57 through 62. And we think that you'll be helped if you read it and make sure that what we're saying is from God's Word. Luke 9, beginning in verse 57. Hear that Christ says the same thing about sacrifice as 1 Kings does. You might even hear some of the same words. Verse 57. As they were going along, going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
wow, don't we just love it when people like dedicate everything and you just expect Jesus to do what? Like, yeah, sure, come on. I'd love that kind of guy. But Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Wow. Okay. To another, he said, follow me. But that guy said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Wow. Another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those that are at my home. Let me kiss my mother and my father. Notice Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow. Hmm. wonder what we're supposed to be picking up there. And he looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. How do you understand those words? Your allegiance to anything else cannot trump your allegiance to Jesus. You cannot be aligned with any other thing if you really want to follow Jesus. God needs to be your chief priority. To that, we look at the example of Jesus Christ who didn't have priorities in life. He had a priority. This is my meat, singular, is to do the will of the Father. Wouldn't it be great in your life if you didn't have priorities to manage, but you had a priority? My priority is to make God's glory renowned. And everything else now begins to be used to help that. Well, perhaps this whole passage of sacrifice and the cost and counting the cost sounds negative to you. But I think it might be easier for you this morning if you hear this in a positive tone. Can I do it on the opposite side? As opposed to you thinking about counting the cost, let me see if I can paint it for you in a positive picture. Picture for a moment all that you have. Think about it, really. Picture all that you have. Picture how valuable that is to you. And how valuable it all sincerely is to you. It's your stuff. It's your memories. It's things that you've worked for. You get a picture of that? Then realize that Christ is worth even more than all of that. To be clear, it's not a price that we pay to get salvation. As if you were willing to give up all that, that gives you an entrance fee into heaven. No, God requires more than we could ever pay, ever give. God is the one who made restitution by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. He paid for our sins. He gave his life a ransom for many. But here's how you accept that gift. By valuing it more than anything else. To help clarify what a Christian name only is, we have to constantly clarify in America, in a culture that still has some nominal Christianity, we have to clarify what does it really mean to accept Christ. We often use the word, you have to believe in him. But from this passage, I think it might be better for us to make sure that you aren't a Christian name only if you use the word treasure. Do you treasure Christ above all else? That's the same word for believing and trusting, but it kind of gets to the heart of the issue, right? Here's what you need to think about. Losing all and gaining Christ is an unbelievable bargain. Do you believe that? Losing all and gaining Christ is an unbelievable bargain. It's in light of that wealth, what he's done for us. It's in light of that relationship, who he is for us, that we are now asked to give up everything and to have our allegiance only be to him so christ tells us count the cost count 
the cost. Estimate the cost before acting. So what I want you to do in these next couple of moments is to consider the cost, apply it in your own life, and draw some of your own conclusions. I'm going to give you some examples, but I think that you can do this on your own. If you want a good book to help you this week, there's a book by J.C. Ryle called Holiness. You don't want to read the whole book? Great. I'm going to tell you the best chapter probably ever written. Chapter 5 is called The Cost. I have it copied. It's in the office. See me at the door. Love to give you a handout of just that chapter called The Cost. You will not be disappointed. And what J.C. Ryle is going to try to encourage you to do is how to count the cost. Faith family, should it be pretty easy for you now in our cultural moment to see that it's going to cost something for you to be a Christian? I'm proud of how many of you who are thinking through that cost. Just this year, here are some of the conversations I've had. I met with one guy this year who had his co-worker celebrating the wedding of two people of the same gender. And he kind of wondered what he should do. How to sign the card? Should he sign the card? Should he go to the party? Should it be a celebration? Why is he doing that? Because he knows that in our culture at this moment, the public concern for religious freedom has been replaced by the public's concern for sexual freedom. And so the culture is a lot more comfortable with being hostile towards religious freedom than it is towards being hostile towards sexual freedom. Don't cross that. Friends, we'd be foolish not to assess the cost. Do you see how that impacts our church? It's been slow, but I'm sure you can kind of pick up some of these things. I might even poke you in the eye accidentally here, so talk to me after the service if you disagree with me. I could learn from you. I think as a faith family, back in the day, 13 years ago, we really appreciated it and we love spontaneity. If someone gets up and says, I want to follow Jesus, we're like, whoa, that guy just like felt convicted in the sermon, got up, raised his hand, that guy, his spontaneity must mean he's sincere. That's how we kind of hear spontaneity in church. Anything that we do where we're not man's plans and programs and getting it to happen, but we just sought the spirit and he worked as a, I want to go on the mission field. We're like, yeah, that person's sincere. But let me ask you this question. How good would it be to spontaneously get up and say, I'm running a marathon. And I just leave out that door and start going. How many miles? 30? 26. Huh? What if I just raise my hand and says, I'm getting married. I just picked one of you. <laughs> Some of you get scared, <laughs> right? Because a marathon and a marriage is a good thing, but they are long and arduous things. And so though I might spontaneously feel moved to so do, you would want me to what? Hey, caution. Like, have you counted the cost of marriage? Have you counted the cost that you might not make it to the finish line? And so that's why in our church we know that we're not encouraging people to raise their hand, walk an aisle, say a prayer, or even get baptized spontaneously. I had a college student come back and say, at my university, they spontaneously baptize people. Are we going to do that here? And I said, well, you know, you do see that in Acts. But you also see tongues of fire coming down and 5,000 being saved in one day. So next time there's tongues of fire coming down at FCBC and 5,000 are being saved, then that might be when we do some spontaneous baptisms. But until then, what are we saying? We want to make sure that you understand what you're saying. Because when you get up there and you dedicate your life to Christ, we want to help you endure to the end because talk is cheap. 
You know, the older I get, the less I'm convinced of convincing statements. And I think Jesus was too. Jesus, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Really? Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Count the cost. It has to change how we do membership. It changes how we share the gospel. We include in our gospel presentation not just rewards of heaven, but our gospel presentation includes you must repent of your sins and believe. Because there's a turning from, and there's a turning to. Well, faith family, the good news is Elijah, Elisha wasn't all talk. Notice that Elijah burned his plow in verse 21. Doesn't it just stand out as the most beautiful picture of what does it mean to go all in? He couldn't go back if he wanted to. 1 Kings 19.21, he returned from following him, and he took the yoke of oxen, he sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yoke of oxen, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. Do you know what it means to burn your plow? No looking back. I'll tell you what it means. It means he wasn't going to try this like we try a major in college. You know, I'm thinking about being an accounting major. <laughs> Actually, I switched majors. Preacher, it is for me. Right? That's not how it works when it comes to burning your plow. Burning your plow means I will follow you no matter what the cost. I will follow you no matter what it looks like. I'll follow you no matter how, how, how I feel about it. I will follow you no matter what people say about me. The call to discipleship is unconditional. So faith him, let me ask you. Have you taken away your but first? Jesus, I'll follow you. But first... You know, Augustine's famous for this prayer. Lord, make me good, but not yet. That's a church father. He's pretty honest about his heart. How often do we pray, Lord, make me good, but not yet? Because why? We haven't counted the cost. We love our sin. We nurse it along. We want to protect it. We want to feed it. We don't want anybody getting in our chili because not yet, Lord. Faith family, have you taken away your if-onlys? Jesus, I'll serve you. If only. If you have any conditions or any qualifications on following Jesus, it might mean that you are a Christian in name only. Because you're still your own king. You're still running your own kingdom because you're still calling the shots. And someone who still calls the shots is not actually a servant in Christ's kingdom. Jesus says in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Christ pictures our faith walk as a walk with a cross on our back. You know why he did that? Because everyone back then knew that when you saw a man walking with a cross, that was the very last thing that person would ever do. It was not like, oh, I'm just going to try this thing out for a bit, CrossFit workout. That's not it. It's not like, ah, oh, you know, this is going to help me with my shoulders and keep my posture up straight. No. There's no middle ground. There's no conditions. This is the last thing that he was going to do with his life. And so when Christ says, take up your cross and follow him, he's meaning that's the last thing you're going to do with your life. To take up your cross and follow him means that you consider it is better to die than to live for something other than Jesus. And there you have it. The cost. Plain and simple. The cross of Christ. Have you counted the cost? 
We all have to count the cost because Jesus Christ lays that cross right across your path. Every single person that wants to follow him is walking down this hallway, walking on this aisle of their life, on this journey, and at some point in time, you're going to come across the cross in which you have to pick up. For some of you, it might be this. Some in here have desires for a relationship. And the cross of Jesus falls across your path as you want to date a non-Christian. And all of a sudden, your will is confronted with, are you going to take up your cross and follow me? Or do you love someone else more than me? It may fall across your path when you want to neglect the local church. But it may go against his teaching at the Lord's table, do this in remembrance of me. In Hebrews 10.25, when it says, don't forsake the regular assembly. There's many people that have been hurt in church. I think we're pretty patient here with how to nurse and care for people through that. But there are many people that have given up on it and said, I just want to go meet with God in the woods. I don't need this whole church family business. Well, the cross of Christ falls across your path and says, how are you going to not forsake the assembly of yourselves and do that? Or perhaps the cross falls across your path because you want to be liked by your friends. And your friends are into the things of this world. And that often leads into fornication and drunkenness. The cross is right there in the middle of your path. Take it up. Follow me. Come and die. You know, in ways big or small, the cross of self-denial falls across the path of everyone who wants to follow Jesus. So have you been confronted with that Jesus who lays down a cross in your path? You can't get around it. Have you been offended, upset, or angered that he seems so unreasonable in his unconditional demands? Come on, work with me a little here. You know, if you've been offended, if you've been upset, if you've been angered by what Christ is calling you to do, guess what? There's more hope for you than if you're here this morning thinking Jesus is a nice guy, you like his teachings, and you're going to try them. You have not met the real Jesus, if that's what you think. You are a nominal Christian, in name only, because you haven't met the real Jesus who does offend, who does anger. And there's more hope for you, because that's who Jesus is. He turns your life upside down. That's the problem with Jesus. He revolutionizes. And he expects no conditions upon your commitment. Whew. Now this has gotten pretty somber in here, pretty quiet. Many of you have slunk, slunken down kind of low. I want to offer a word of distinction so that you might not have as much discouragement in the week ahead. Christ is asking for your absolute commitment. But absolute commitment does not mean absolute obedience. There is no one here that's perfect. You are going to sin. I sin. I don't follow Jesus like I should every day. By either the sins that I do or the things that I should do that I didn't. But the heart is I want to be aligned and my allegiance is fully for him. And I still need to be washed daily of my sins and restored and kept by his grace. And so a call to discipleship is unconditional, but don't confuse commitment with obedience. It's a path. For those of you that are wondering, how could you ever get there? Let's ask that question. 
How did Elisha get to the point where he is unconditionally committed? He kisses his parents goodbye, cuts up his oxen, burns his equipment, and there is no turning back. How do you get there? And can you stay there? Wouldn't that be great? Well, we have to ask ourselves, how do you get there? Is it an informational thing? Was it rational and mechanical that he kind of just weighed these costs and did this analysis and then made his decision? Cut up oxen, burn the plow, let's go for it. You know, I would rather preach than plow. Have you seen the calluses on my hands? I mean, it's a hard work out there. This life of our prophet. I mean, I've seen what pastors do. They like work one day a week. They, they, they type a lot. That seems the life for me, you know, like a professor type. You guys aren't really smiling. Okay, all right. That was kind of some jokes at my expense. But, you know, he, he's, is he weighing it in that way? No. I don't believe that's how it's done. I don't think it was informational. I don't think it was mechanical. I think it was emotional. The call to discipleship is deeply emotional. Several famous authors all get at this. I'm going to give them to you from the oldest to the newest. Augustine. He wrote a book called Confessions. The whole book is a prayer. He wrote the whole book as a prayer. What discipline it takes to write a book and to keep the whole thing as a prayer. You should read it. He says this, the key to a transformed life is the right ordering of your loves. The key to changing your life is to make sure that you have the right loves in the right order. Next, Thomas Chalmers, a famous Scottish preacher, he preached this sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Long title, complicated. But what is he getting at? He says, the only way that you dispossess your heart of that old affection is by the expulsive power of a new, greater affection. We've preached this before. Look over there, that beautiful oak tree in the parsonage yard, and there are still leaves on it in the middle of winter, correct? Dead brown leaves. How do you get dead brown leaves off a living oak tree? You wait till spring. When it is the flowing of life-giving power sap that creates a bud that finally expels the old dead leaf that's hung on. How do you kill an old sin that's still hanging on in your life? You haven't been able to get rid of it for years. It's hanging on through winter. Even though the Bible says you are now dead to sin and alive to Christ. How do you actually do that? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you with a new and greater affection for Christ that produces life. And you no longer want to choose to go back to those old affections, but you have this stronger, greater affection for Christ. Our newest author says, you don't decide to follow Jesus. Francis Chan says, you got to be crazy in love with him. And he wrote a book called Crazy Love, right? His diagnosis of Christians is this. It's not that you love anything else too much. It's that you love Jesus too little. So he spends the first three chapters just trying to argue with you. Do you see the beauty and worth of Christ? Every Christian at some point in time is tempted to say, is he worth it? And Francis Chan says, do you know who you're talking to? Have you seen who he is? So here's the implication. Some of you might sit here and say, you know, the problem I have with Jesus, the reason why he's not my number one priority is because I'm really disorganized. I'm an undisciplined person. Francis Chan would say, it has nothing to do with you being undisciplined or disorganized. The reason why Christ is not the top priority in your life is because you're not emotionally crazy about him. You go where your loves take you. 
That's why Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, here's another emotional word. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, do you hear that emotional word? Hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. What's he saying? Hate's a strong emotional word. It's the essence of what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ. That in comparison to Jesus, that you hate all other things. Because you love him so much. You'd rather choose him than anything else. And so finally, to wrap up our sermon, we have verse 21. The last point, following Jesus requires making the commitment. We see that Elisha, he arose and he went after Elijah and he assisted him. Man, if you have successfully traveled with me for this whole sermon, you still have one more step of faith to take. Here's that step of faith. Repent of your sins and put your, Christ, put your faith in Christ as both your Lord and your Savior. Without any but firsts, if onlys, or not yet. Maybe you're here and you think that you are a Christian. And it's only the super Christians that could do that. No. The point of this whole story is that to follow Jesus and to have him as your king is for you to learn to be his servant. And if there are any conditions on your service, it means that you're still king and Christ is your servant. Now, that's the beginning of how this journey works. But the fact of the matter is, it's still a journey. There's a moment where you cross the path from death to life. There's a moment where you get up and you go and you follow. But the good news is that this is something that you still have to follow. There is a path. It's a journey. It lies ahead of you. You don't have to have it all together. The call to discipleship is gradual. If you keep reading Kings, you're going to notice that Elisha is the apprentice of Elijah for 18 years before he actually takes the mantle. Isn't that how it's funny how that works? Elisha speeds everything up. Slaughters the oxen, has a fire, sacrifice, has food. Okay, I'm all in. Elijah slows him down. Hey, it's going to take a long time for you to get a double portion of the Spirit. And we hear things like their relationship deepens in 2 Kings. He calls him father. We also see the menial task that he has to do. He actually just pours water over Elijah's hands and washes his hands sometimes. But that's God's normal pattern is for us when we get all excited... We want to speed up and yell, let's make something of that guy, sure. But sometimes there's maturity and say, let's slow this down. This is a gradual walk. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Faith family, I want to call you to be a follower of Jesus. Hear the call, count the cost, make the commitment. Choose this day whom you will serve. Here's how it'll work. On the one hand, you'll have an eternity. You'll sit in before God. You'll have all of your stuff. All of your relationships, your entire life, and it will either be piled up and stand there as something that you loved more than Christ, and it stopped you from following him. That's one side. Or you'll have all of your stuff, all of your relationships, all of your life, and it will stand there as the means that you use to follow him. Because God calls every Christian into life and ministry because he uses every relationship, every friendship, our job, our money, our health, our time, our resources, all that he entrusts into our hands for his purposes and his glory. And you'll find out that he is worth it. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, 
who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. There's a reward. Christ is worth it. Would you count the cost, make a commitment, and follow him? Let's stand and sing, I Surrender All.